Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe today is the last day of January, and we start a new month tomorrow, being the second month of 2021. January certainly uh, went by quick, but as I've said before, uh, for all of us who are older in life, um, the faster time goes, uh, the older we get, whether we like to control, whether we like it or not. Unfortunately, it's just what it is. However, um, what makes today's podcast unique is that um, where I live, uh, it, it snowed overnight, and we probably had about three inches of snow on the ground, so my wife and I were out earlier today shoveling snow, um, probably for about an hour and a half, uh, but it was nice to see um, the snow on the ground because uh, last winter, being last year, there really wasn't much of any snow at all, so it was nice to see it, uh, to say the least. But here we are again uh, discussing Peter L. Bernstein's uh, Wedding of the Waters, the Erie Canal, and the Making of a Great Nation. We're going to be uh, discussing, starting with this um, episode, I figured it would be best to do it in uh, two, but we're going to be discussing, um, we're still on uh, part five, that is after the wedding, but we're going to now focus on um, the canal's um, expansion. In other words, we're going to learn for ourselves just how much um, expansion the canal has done in terms of uh, cities, not just in New York in terms of population or for New York City and for the state of New York, but what this is going to be doing um, westward and how um, a couple of cities west of Buffalo are going to benefit from the canal and one of those cities will even create its own canal uh, so fasten your seat belts and uh, let's get ready to uh, go. So our first uh, lead-off bonus question is going to be uh, the following. How big of a transformation did the landscape in general, the landscape being where the uh, Erie Canal was uh, constructed, how big of a transformation did that landscape in general undergo after the canal's completion? Well, I would think by now that the uh, transformation is something that's going to be um, drastic and not not in the sense bad but drastic as in something that's never been seen before because um, from an earlier podcast I mentioned that nothing like this had ever been done before in America. This is a -a one-of-a-kind thing but that doesn't mean though that other um, places westward especially in that uh, Northwest Territory could um, establish a canal system of their own but we will find that out later on. So the transformation was grand, but yet, in my mind, it was beyond grand. The Erie Canal's success with linking the Atlantic Ocean to inland communities enabled immigrants who came um, into America, who came to America, rather, by um, not just arriving into America, but by settling in um, places in upstate New York, like, you know, Buffalo, Rochester, and then we go west into Ohio, for example, the immigrants aren't just coming there to start a new life. They are there to um, turn what was what would be villages that are in existence at the moment. Villages will become towns, and then towns will become cities. So think about it. Just because there is a city, a well-known city that's in existence uh, today that's, say like for example Chicago, we must remember that Chicago was not always a city. And how ironic that we're going to talk about Chicago here, and we'll talk more about um, Chicago uh, towards the end, but 
I want to start out with, a little, with an example of Chicago. Chicago started out as a town in August of 1833, Chicago, Illinois. And the population in August of 1833 in Chicago was roughly or close to 200 people. But three and a half years later, on March the 4th of 1837, Chicago went from a town to a city, and at one point became the world's fastest growing city. Well, for those of you who wonder why Chicago is referred to as the Windy City, I can tell you this much. It has nothing to do with the weather. Um, this would be for a whole other topic or discussion, but I can tell you uh, that it's the reason for why it's called the Windy City is because it has to do with the politics. Uh, I've been to Chicago before, but it's uh, I, the last time I was there it was probably about 18 years ago, uh, but I would definitely uh, go back again one of these days. So Chicago, obviously, is a good example of a town that is a... Um, well, we know it is a city now, but it started out as a town, and then it was transformed um, three and a half years three and a half years later into a city. And I'll explain a little bit more about um, Chicago's transformation and how that city not only benefited from the Erie Canal, but also was able to uh, go about doing its own um, construction of a canal that was very similar to the Erie Canal. And it had um, solid, um, it had a solid impact as well. So by the start of the 1830s, most notably 1831, what else is going to, um, what other form of transportation is going to start making its presence known? That it's not going to put the Erie Canal out of business, but it's going to assist the Erie Canal with helping transport goods and people. How about uh, railroads? As I mentioned from the previous podcast, the first um, official railroad that came about uh, was the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad in 1828, um, just a, about three years after the Erie Canal was officially opened. But in 18, at the start of the 1830s, that's when uh, railroads will begin making their presence. And over time, the canal itself, the Erie Canal, would undergo an enlargement or an expansion. So, here's another bonus question right here. Did the Erie Canal's presence alone inspire establishment of, a, of the first steam railroad in the United States? Yes. And what do you know? That first steam railroad was um, built in New York State. The, um, that steam railroad was referred to as the Mohawk in Albany, which, opened, which officially opened in August of 1831. It operated the line between Albany and Schenectady. It ran a 16-mile route, which enabled passengers to get from point A to point B in one hour versus, versus having to rely on an entire day's travel by canal, which covered 27 locks. And when I say an entire day, folks, this is 24 hours. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with doing the canal, but many people who were traveling found that this route by rail was much quicker and if you're in a crunch to get to that final destination then I would say take the rail if you're not in a crunch then you might be you might be inclined to want to go by canal but it's good to know that even in the early 1830s there is a faster route to get from point A to point B 
It's not everywhere in New York State, but there is a, lo a particular location from Albany to Schenectady via the Mohawk and Albany Railroad, or Steam Railroad. Now, many of you are wondering, okay, well, if we've got this rail line here now, how are, is it only going to be a short period of time before railroads overtake canals? I can tell you this much, it won't be a short period of time. It will take longer, but it is good to have more than one form of um, mass transportation, given that, uh, as we all know, horse and carriage, while that's okay, it's not always, it's, it's obviously no longer going to be the most relevant answer for transporting large quantities of goods, as well as large quantities of people who are wanting to start a new life in the new world. Now, I've mentioned DeWitt Clinton's name many of times from previous podcasts. You know, he was the mayor of New York and served um, a multitude of terms as governor of New York. Was he alive in 1831 to see um, the first uh, steam railroad under um, be put into operation? Sadly, DeWitt Clinton died in 1828. However, it is ironic that the same year he died was also the same year that the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad officially opened for business. But no, he um, died in 1828, um, before, but that was before the first steam railroad was completed. Now, between 1836 and 1862, we're looking at about just over a 25-year span, the Erie Canal was enlarged. And I mentioned earlier that the canal would undergo um, an, uh, what do you call it, an enlargement process. How so? Well, isn't it fair to say that the canal has become such a great form of transportation demand to move and transport goods from east to west, uh, west to east? Isn't it fair to say that the canal should undergo a, um, an enlargement? Absolutely, because it's got to meet an ever-increasing demand for commercial traffic. So what would the new enlarged Erie Canal look like? Well, it would be about almost 351 miles long. Now, the mileage might seem less than what it was originally when it was 363, but here's, the, um, here's where it's better. The original Erie Canal was 40 feet wide, 4 feet deep. The new Erie Canal is 70 feet wide and 7 feet deep. And there is a reduction in locks. The original was 83. Now we have 72. The new Erie Canal can accommodate boats carrying up to 240 tons of freight. Now remember, folks, 2,000 pounds is the equivalent to one ton, so we take 2,000 pounds and multiply that times 240 tons. That's 480,000 pounds of freight. We're almost looking at half a million uh, pounds of freight that these boats can transport. That is, um, that is uh, very, very significant um, considering that um, when, even when the canal was 40 feet wide and 4 feet deep, yes, the boats could still ship a lot of goods, but this, uh, the enlargement has pretty much um, doubled or tripled um, the uh, overall freight tonnage. And we can say by 1852, 13 times there is about 13 times more freight tonnage moving on an enhanced Erie Canal versus all railroads in New York State. So, where, what disadvantage does a railroad, or, or let alone the railroad systems, have right now at this time? Well, they are transporting people and goods, 
But the thing is, is that railroad systems in these early days were not equipped to carry heavy quantities of goods like grain and timber. You know, the Erie Canal is able to um, accommodate boats that can transport a variety of goods. You know, for, trains can do the same thing too, but remember folks, trains can't accommodate at this point in time 480,000 pounds of freight. I'm not even sure what the overall amount that they could accommodate freight-wise, but I can tell you it's not anywhere close to 480,000 pounds. I should also point out, and this is a, um, a unique statistic, of course we all know that 1825 is the year that the Erie Canal was officially opened, or that was its official com it was officially completed to where the whole canal was open from point A to point B, but from 1825 all the way to 1882, we're looking at, you know, from well before the start of the Civil War to the post-Civil War time, uh, being 1882, five years after Reconstruction, that the canal served over 20 million people with revenues of up to 121 million. Gosh, I mean, I, I'm not sure what that would equate to in today's um, world of money, but to be able to exceed over 100 million in terms of revenue and serving over 20 million people is, is beyond remarkable. And here's another uh, bonus question right here. Did urban centers, we're talking about, you know, um, city metropolises, did urban centers transform shortly after the Erie Canal's opening? Yes. The... Um, I would say the big impact of uh, the transformation with the urban centers really took place between 1830 up until 1850. So the percentage of people living in urban centers increased from 9% in 1830 to 15% in 1850. A majority of change took place at the eastern and western terminuses, but we should also... Um, the eastern terminus, as I've mentioned from previous podcasts, being Albany and the western being Buffalo. But I should point out that the uh, Hudson Valley, which is um, really the halfway point between the eastern terminus and New York City, must not be uh, forgotten as well. So we'll start with the eastern terminus being Albany. Now, what I find interesting about Albany per um, Peter L. Bernstein's uh, book here, is that um, even tourists who came from Europe, well before the Erie Canal was built, they viewed the city as one that really just was not attractive. How so? There were, very, there were a lot of unpaved streets. There were very few street lamps. It was just one of those places many thought, you know, was just simply uninhabitable because... It did, there just wasn't enough to attract people to come. Well, thank goodness the Erie Canal was, uh, was built, not just for Albany, but in general, because I think it's fair to say that a lot of, a lot of uh, towns and villages, and in some instances those places that did become cities, their um, status or their images were probably greatly improved. Think about it. If you don't have an Erie Canal that's built then who's to say that people might want to come and live in a village? You know, villages or in towns grow because of a transportation system that they're dependent upon. Well, in the aftermath of the Erie Canal's completion, Albany's 
population expanded from 28,000 in 1835, being 10 years after the canal's completion, to 90,000 in 1850. That is a, a very, very drastic um, shift in uh, population. But there again, this Erie Canal has um, proven itself not just as a means for directing the Atlantic Ocean to the inland waterways of New York State, but as a means for bringing in jobs. You know, think about it. Immigrants are settling in places that, are, that have been uninhabited. You know, it's not just people establishing a village, but they're going to bring jobs. And, you know, boats need to be able to transport these goods from point A to point B. So without uh, people est establishing villages, then what's the point in boats um, going along uh, the route? Think about it. There has to be, everybody's got to um, help out in order to uh, make this system a relevant uh, form of operation. Now, there is a, the Hudson Valley, as I said earlier, is the halfway point between New York City and Albany, but it became known as an area for shipping coal from Pennsylvania as well as manufacturing cement machinery to iron castings. Take a look at uh, villages like Kingston and other Hudson Valley towns like Newburgh, Poughkeepsie, Hudson, and Troy. They became the centers where goods moved consistently west and eastward. So really, if you think about it, it's not so much a north and south point, it's really east and west, okay? The goods coming ju just from the south, New York, they have, there's, a, there's a, basically a choice for the Hudson Valley. They're either going to go east into Albany, or they're going to flow west into Syracuse and Utica, Rome, all the way to Rochester and Buffalo. So the bottom line is the Hudson Valley is benefiting tremendously from, an east and, from eastward and westward. Now, as for Buffalo, being at the western terminus, in 1810 it was a village, as DeWitt Clinton described it, it was a village with little to go by. Well, as, as I mentioned earlier about Albany, unpaved streets, uh, no, uh, what do you call it, um, very few um, lights, or what I should say is um, street lamps. Now, I do know that Buffalo, when it was first established, I learned, my wife and I learned this when we were in uh, western New York three years ago in Niagara Falls, and we did spend about two days in Buffalo, that um, Buffalo, originally, when it was first established, it was a a town or a village that was referred to as Bouffouave, uh French. And then over time it uh, changed it. its name was, uh, I guess, what you call Americanized or into what we call Buffalo. But by 1824, the population is expanding to 2,600. And then as we get to 1834, we're looking at 15,600, and by 1850, 42,000. All in the name, folks, of the Erie Canal, because the Erie Canal is that link from east to west, the, the inland link, that is giving people an opportunity, not just to start a new life, but to be able to establish towns and villages who will prosper under the Erie Canal's presence. As for New York City, the eastern end of the canal system, in 1850 it had a population of 700,000. That's four times more the number versus 1825, the year canal finished. And between 1825 and 1836, the value of real and personal property had tripled from 101 to 310 million. 
Well, I, I tell you, you know, when word gets out about uh, an engineering marvel like the Erie Canal and the end results are nothing but extreme positivity, extreme relevancy, I think people do want to move somewhere where economic growth can go further than one would have previously imagined. And when you want to go somewhere where economic growth is, is the real thing, your personal pro the personal properties are going to rise because of the demand. I should also point out here that in 1817, the year that um, the canal construction began, if you look at places like Rochester, Syracuse, and then you get to a place called Lockport, which is just outside of um, Niagara Falls, not too far from Buffalo, most notably Rochester and Syracuse, those um, places had fewer than 3,000 people in 1817. Now, by 1825, the, the year that the Erie Canal has officially um, opened, all three of these towns have nearly 6,000 residents. Land values alone from 1820 to 1846 grew by 91%. Well, it's one thing to have personal property values go up, and when they, when they go up, the land value goes up. And that means that there's a greater demand of people wanting to come move into new uncharted territory. Now, I think it's fair to say that, um, that people who moved westward from the 13 colonies, they weren't confined to, from the original 13 colonies, that is, those from the American Revolution era. People who moved westward, they weren't confined to just one class. They were people who were willing to um, sacrifice it all, and they wanted to go westward to be able to uh, help the nation grow. They wanted to help the nation's um, long-term, um, what do you call it, security be one that was stable, one that uh, would not see the United States be occupied by people who, yes, may have had rights to land, but given that they might have been there before we were, but as George Washington said, it was our national security that was at stake. In other words, we didn't want to have our country be occupied not just by other European powers, given that Britain and Spain were still there, and, and the French, they still had what we now call that Louisiana Territory. We basically wanted a nation to ourselves, but a nation that would, whose national security would, be, would not be in danger, but by having people go westward, they would be able to um, establish a new life and be able to ensure that our country's boundaries were secure beyond the Appalachian Mountains. And this is where I think it's safe to say that you have um, a battle over what's called old money versus new money. Uh, those, I think it's fair to say that those who resented the Erie Canal, most notably in Virginia, for example, of course Virginia, not to get off track here, but we should uh, be reminded that even after the American Revolutionary War ended, Virginia is still the largest state. But those who are skeptical of the Erie Canal, or let alone canal, 
construction or even canal mania in general are those uh, from the Tidewater region who control so much of uh, Virginia's land um, holdings. So they would be the ones who would be very skeptical of a canal system in large part because they don't they would fear it as something that could take away their um, system being an agrarian economy, but they would also see um, they would see it as a as a means with western expansion that uh, westerners would have greater authority in the political um, system in Virginia versus the original tidewater aristocrats from pre-American Revolutionary War times, and, and, and as well as in the post-Revolutionary War era, because even before West Virginia, what we now know as West Virginia, which uh, separated from Virginia, Virginia's, the vast majority of the um, representation in the Virginia legislature is in the East, while the minority is still the West, but the Westerners are the ones who want all these new transportation um, what do you call it, expansion. They want not just westward expansion, they want to be able to connect the east and the west via an inland waterway. The people in the east just don't want that because the fear that m the more people who move west, the greater the, um, the, greater the um, potential for uh, further conflict and the greater the harm for, um, for the Tidewater area to lose its economic uh, significance. So it is fair to say, though, that most Southerners, I've mentioned this from a previous podcast, that most Southerners are very skeptical of a canal. Well, even Thomas Jefferson was not a big fan of the canal system. Even when he was president of the United States, he had a lot of skepticism about even wanting to build an Erie Canal or just canals in general. And I think it's fair to say that most Southerners at this time would have been very hesitant on wanting to move northward because... Most Southerners, all they've known is an agrarian-based economy. So our next uh, question here is this, that given that the Erie Canal ended at the eastern end of Lake Erie, how much of a population increase was there westward-wise? Well, I can tell you this much. Um, around 1825, the western population, that is, from Ohio, um, Indiana, and Illinois. Of course, Michigan's still not even a state yet. It won't be for another 10 years by come 1835 when Michigan's finally admitted into the Union. That um, most notably the population, I guess we could still say that, that uh, there are people, yes, there are people living in the Michigan Territory, but the Western population in 1825 is 2.5 million. We will see between that time and up into 1850 an increase of 5 million people. So by 1850, there are 7.5 million people living in the west, in uh, western territories past Lake Erie, or past Buffalo. That's about a 21 to 33% population increase. And without this water route through the Allegheny Mountains, western expansion would have become slower and the nation's national security would have been further compromised. And how true was George Washington on that? Because remember, folks, he was the first. He truly was the first American of his time. And this was before, the, and he said this even before the American Revolutionary War broke out. I remember telling you all this from a previous podcast. 
early on that Washington knew that if a canal system was not built to not just expand into Western territory, but to link the Atlantic Ocean to the um, into the um, inland um, into the inland basins of the United States, not just with the 13 original states, but westward, our national security would have been in danger. In other words, that Northwest Territory was crucial for the start of not just expanding into um, that territory, but what we would eventually know as the Louisiana Territory and beyond into what we now know the Pacific Coast. So we don't want two separate nations in the United States, or what we know is the United States. In other words, we don't want 13, na- we, yes, we have 13 na- countries, I mean 13 states, but if we have um, another nation in what's known as the Northwest Territory and then another nation in the Louisiana Territory region, how can we have a unified United States? We simply, it just simply cannot work that way. So, Yes, um, the Easterners in Virginia around the Tidewater can ob- region can object all they want. And that's not to say, though, however, that some in Tidewater probably did go westward. But in order to, in order to ensure your country's safety, there are people out there who will be willing to make the sacrifice and go west. A lot, many in Massachusetts did, this, did that. They went into Ohio um, and Indiana. You have... Um, People in, uh, in other states who went westward, uh, most notably, even after the American Revolution, a fellow by the name of uh, Jonathan Dayton from uh, New Jersey, who would be a signer of the United States Constitution, and I will tell you all here, Dayton, Ohio, is named after him. Uh, Jonathan Dayton encouraged um, his fellow New Jerseyans who wanted to go west into what was now Ohio, what we know is Ohio, he uh, encouraged many New Jerseyans to go west to populate uh, Ohio. While, um, while all that was great, it was an important sacrifice to have been made because um, there again, it, you know, it's one thing to um, be secure in your own area, but if there aren't people willing to risk going westward, then, how, then who's going to step up and, and, and ensure that our western boundaries are going to be safe from uh, foreign enemies. That's why Washington was so convinced, folks, that without a water route through the Allegheny Mountains, western expansion would have become slower and our national security would have been further compromised. So instead of a north-south axis, you know, we're always convinced that goods go north and south or people are moving north and south, but what we forget is that they're... That there is an east-west um, direction as well. So isn't it fair to say that the Erie Canal's focus focused east to west as well as west to east? Absolutely. And by shifting the focus from an east to west as well as west to east, the economy is shifting from slaveholding, cotton-based south to an industrialized economy up north. All right, here's a good bonus question for you all. I mentioned this earlier, and I'm going to mention it now. Which two Midwest cities that originally began as towns would become commercial epicenters due to the Erie Canal's presence? One, I'll give you a hint. One's in Ohio, 
and the other one I mentioned earlier. But here we go. Cleveland, Ohio, and Chicago, Illinois. So what do we know about Cleveland? Well, for starters, it's located in northeast Ohio, and it's right on Lake Erie. Uh, Cleveland is not far from Erie, Pennsylvania, or let alone Buffalo, New York. Uh, starting in 1820, there were fewer than 100 people living in the area, and by 1825, shortly after the Erie Canal opened, 15 vessels sailing from Buffalo brought goods into Ohio. It helps to have another uh, major city nearby who can, um, who can help out another neighboring city that's still in the works of becoming um, a place for, um, for um, business to thrive. So starting in 1826, believe it or not, pork, barrel pork that will be placed in barrels, will become Ohio's largest eastbound export. And by 1830, the population in Cleveland goes from is a thousand, and by 1850, the city will boom to 17,000. So, what's another city that will benefit from Cleveland's presence, given that Cleveland is east of this city? Chicago. And how does Chicago benefit? Well, I can tell you this much: Chicago is growing rapidly. Chicago benefits from a variety of ways. It benefits from railroads as well as water. Now, Lake Michigan, as we all know, is the only one of the five great lakes that is um, in the United States. It doesn't go into Canada. The other four great lakes are, in the, are, are both United States and Canada, Huron, Superior, Ontario, and Erie. But for Chicago, it benefits uh, not just by, uh, benefits from the water, but it also benefits from the railroad. In 1840, Chicago, being three years old as a city, its population was 4,500. And by 1850, we are looking now at about uh, 25,500 uh, population increase to where the city now is at 30,000. So just before 1850, Chicago has its own canal system you know, we're all led to believe at this time there's really only one canal system. That's the Erie Canal. Well, believe it or not, no, that's not the case. Just before 1850, being in the late 1840s, Chicago had constructed its own canal system, being a nine, the 96-mile-long Illinois and Michigan Canal. It connected Chicago and the Great Lakes southward to the Illinois River, onward to St. Louis and the Mississippi River. Well, Chicago has... Um, caught on to the canal mania hysteria because the Illinois and Michigan Canal had the same height buildup like the Erie and believe it or not the Illinois and Michigan Canal was constructed without any federal government assistance you know I often wonder why is it that the federal government isn't big into canals I think the government wants to finance canals but we've got a problem there's too much sectional conflict. Northerners are all big into canals. Southerners could care less about canals. There aren't any canals in Virginia. You're not going to find any canals in the Carolinas or Georgia, Alabama. It's very simple, folks. The North is very big into expansion. An industrialized economy means that you're going to bring in more immigrants 
You're going to um, ha always have a constant demand for labor. There's going to be a greater means of transporting goods from point A to point B to where people can always expect to have some kind of demand for, for, for a, a material. In the South, it's an agrarian uh, plantation-based economy. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. The South is what the South would rather expand upon is um, is expand upon what's already been instituted, and that means um, the only way to expand their base is to go westward into what we call further um, slavery expansion. But in order for a state to be a slave state, we all know that a free state will have to be admitted at the same time. How so? Because that's the only way you can stave off any kind of um, war, or what we eventually would know as a civil war. So this um, network of uh, compromises really took off between 1820 all the way up until 1850, where you had a series where you had series well just before 1820 all the way to 1850, where you would have a series of states admitted but they would have to be paired, one free, one slave, in order to promote an, uh, an equilibrium, that is, an equal balance of states. But, of course, come 1850, all that changes when California is admitted to the Union as the 31st state, and that was sadly the last attempt to keep um, slavery out of politics. And, uh, of course, ten, uh, but 10 years later, um, the inevitable happens. So, you know, back to uh, canals and why the North has the canals, because the North is all about expansion. While the South wants expansion, they just don't want canals built because their economy isn't going to benefit from it, from, from what, um, their, their economy just won't benefit from it in general. I mean, in other words, why would South Carolina want to institute a canal system that would um, transport indigo, rice, and cotton all the way up north into Pennsylvania and New York. They, they, in other words, they don't, they, they don't see um, those northern states as benefiting from their goods. So, and, and it could be fair to say, too, that southern states would also fear a canal system that might even allow for slaves to escape their master's plantations and hop on a packet boat going in going northward that would ensure freedom that's something there to think about as well now my focus here is not to uh, get off subject to the point where we're gonna we would be talking about something different but we must keep in mind why um, why things happened the way they did and why you know New York State went about constructing the Erie Canal on its own as well as you know, Illinois, the state of Illinois, constructing this um, Illinois-Michigan canal. Yes, you would have had the support from the North, but it, but unfortunately you would not have gotten support from the South, and who's to say that any bills um, being proposed in Congress about constructing a canal would have even made it out of committee? More than likely, it probably wouldn't have. So, thank heavens you've got some brilliant ingenuity on the parts of states, like New York and Illinois, who, through a lot of, um, what do you call it, sweat and toil, were 
finally able to come together and do the unthinkable and make the unthinkable a grand reality. And, and remember this too, um, it won't be until closer to the Civil War when railroads start becoming a little bit more accessible down south. Up until well before Civil War, where are all the railroads? They're up north. Where are the canals? Up north. So there you have it, folks. Um, we're, what we're going to be talking about in the next podcast is we're going to still talk more about progress, but what we're going to be talking about is, more about is um, progress that occurred most notably in cities like Syracuse and Buffalo, Rochester, New York. We're also going to talk about um, uh, various uh, goods, most notably like grain, and how Buffalo became the commercial grain center hub for the United States just before the Civil War. So we're almost at the end of this uh, series on the Erie Canal and the making of a great nation. But in order to really understand and appreciate just how essential this canal was, we've got to learn more about the cities in New York State that benefited from the canal. I mean, we've already talked about a fair number of them in some form of context or another, but we've but what we really want to learn more about is how these cities over time, over time, we're not just talking five or ten years, over say 25 years or more, benefited from this uh, canal system. Well, folks, thank you for listening, and uh, I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. And wherever you all are, continue to stay safe and uh, take care.